Welcome to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Tony. 156 years later, the Battle of Gettysburg is still one of the most studied battles in American history and continues to provide us with both compelling and horrifying stories about what happened on those three hellish days in July of 1863. This special episode is an audio documentary that features several historians, each with scholarship on a particular aspect of the battle. In weaving their interviews together, I hope to present a broad overview of the battle. Gettysburg was the bloodiest battle of the war and is considered by many to be the turning point. After two years of fighting and several impressive victories against the Union Army, Robert E. Lee marched the Army of Northern Virginia into Pennsylvania in hopes of securing Southern independence by landing one final blow that would compel foreign nations to recognize the Confederacy and force Abraham Lincoln to make peace. The Union Army, reeling from the stunning defeat at Chancellorsville just two months earlier, was in disarray. Hoping to turn the tide, Lincoln replaced General Joseph Hooker with George Gordon Meade just three days before the battle began. Any discussion about the Battle of Gettysburg must begin with the Union disaster at Chancellorsville. Chancellorsville was a low point for the Union Army and for Maine-born General Oliver Otis Howard, who commanded the Union right flank that was rolled by the daring attack of Stonewall Jackson on May 2, 1863. Tom Huntington, the author of Main Roads to Gettysburg and Searching for George Gordon Meade. Poor Oliver Otis Howard at Chancellorsville. It was uh, definitely, I would say, probably the lowest point of his life. He was in command of the 11th Corps. Um, he had the far right of the Union line. And uh, as, as uh, everyone probably knows, on uh, May 2nd, Stonewall Jackson unleashed his famous flank attack uh, on the Union right, and that happened to be uh, Howard's Corps. Now, you know, uh, Hooker, Joe Hooker was in command of the Army at the time, and he had warned Howard to watch out for his right um, because it was it was unprotected. It was kind of in the air, as they say. There was just you know some thickets uh, at the end uh, w- with no real protections. Um, so he, he had been warned to, to look out for his right. Uh, his division commander, Carl Schertz, had also um, repeatedly warned him that uh, it looked like there might be trouble on the right. So. He, he kind of failed uh, to take that stuff into account, um, and, and he should have done something. Now, Joe Hooker also became convinced that the, that the Confederates were, in fact, retreating from Chancellorsville. They had seen the movement of Confederate troops off in the distance, and as the day went on, I think Hooker became less concerned with, with Howard's right and more convinced that, in fact, Robert E. Lee was retreating, which I guess would be uh, what they call wishful thinking. Um, so so Jackson fell on the 11th Corps, completely surprised it, um, and uh, and they were they were routed. And, and the poor men of the 11th Corps are the ones who took the, you know, the, the, the blame for that. They became known as the Flying Dutchmen because it was a large proportion of Germans uh, in that corps, and they were ridiculed for their alleged cowardice and 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 it, uh, inability to fight. Uh, but I, I think Howard really let his men down. Now he did have a point. He was greatly outnumbered. Um, Hooker had taken his reserve away from him to pursue these these uh, retreating Confederates they had seen. So you can't put all of the blame on 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 Oliver Otis Howard for what happened at Chancellorsville. Uh, to the 11th Corps, but he should have been more prepared. He should have showed a little more initiative, I would think. 
Um, and it was just a, 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 a great blow, um, to him personally. He, he was embarrassed. He was disgraced. Um, and as the army was, was, you know, heading towards Gettysburg, he definitely wanted to try to, to, uh, to rehabilitate his reputation after what had happened at Chancellorsville. Chancellorsville also ruined General Joseph Hooker's relationship with the man who was soon to replace him as the commander of the Army of the Potomac, George Meade. Meade and several of Hooker's corps commanders opposed retreating from Chancellorsville. Despite this consensus, Hooker withdrew. Meade would remember this going into Gettysburg. I think a lot of what, what Meade was did at, at Gettysburg might have been in reaction to things that had happened at Chancellorsville. Um, and, and, and one of those things that happened at Chancellorsville is it kind of poisoned the relationship between Meade and, and Joe Hooker, who was, you know, the commander of the Army of the Potomac at Chancellorsville. Hooker had called his corps commanders together after the, after the, 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 the May 2nd debacle and supposedly to consult them on what they should do. Should they retreat or should they stay and fight? And then he, he excused himself because he didn't want to prejudice the discussion. And the corps commanders decided, you know, discussed amongst themselves what they wanted to do. Now, Meade advocated staying and fighting. And supposedly he had said something like, um, you know, I, I know we can't retreat anyway, so we may as well stay here and fight. Or at least that's what Hooker claimed. But after they had decided, you know, made their decisions, and most of them wanted to stay and fight, Hooker returned and said, you know what, I, I'm, we're going to retreat. And then later, uh, he told Meade that it was Meade's advice that had helped convince him to retreat. And Meade was astonished by this. And he says, what, what did you mean by that? And he says, well, you said, since we can't retreat, we may as well stay and fight. Well, I knew we, we were able to retreat. So I took that to mean that we should retreat. And, and Meade was, was outraged. Uh, in fact, during this conversation, his uh, chief of staff, Alexander Webb, uh, who later fought very well at Gettysburg, left the tent because he did not want to be witness to language that would lead to Meade's court-martial. So at this point, the relationship between Meade and Hooker was strained, to say the least. And on June 28th, Hooker had, Meade hadn't even seen Hooker, I think, in something like two weeks. Uh, he had no idea where the, where the army was, all the pieces of the army were. And uh, in the wee small hours of the morning, uh, Colonel James Hardy showed up from Washington, uh, and he, he arrived at Meade's tent, uh, woke up the, the sleeping general, general and said something like, I've come to bring you trouble. And Meade's first thought was that he was going to be placed under arrest, <laughs> that all these, these simmering tensions with Hooker had finally uh, erupted. Uh, but Hardy explained, though, the, the trouble that he was bringing him were orders for him to take uh, command of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, Meade said, I'm not the man. You should, it should be John Reynolds. Uh, Reynolds was, was a, a friend and a, a comrade in arms. Um, but uh, Hardy said, you know, these are your orders, and, and this is what you have to do. Uh, so, you know, in the middle of, you know, early in the morning, it must have been like three or four in the morning, they rode over to Hooker's uh, command to his headquarters tent, uh, and Hooker must have known something was up because he was waiting in full dress uniform. <laughs> yeah. And they had a discussion about uh, the army. Apparently, it got a little heated when when Meade found out how spread out the army was. At this point, it was slowly moving north in a, a gradual pursuit of of Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, which had already advanced into Pennsylvania. Coming off of his impressive victory at Chancellorsville, Lee moved north. Eric Wittenberg, the author of The Devils to Pay. John Buford at Gettysburg on why Lee invaded Pennsylvania. The primary one was to take the war out of Virginia for the summer. 
for the benefit of the Virginia farmers so that they could get their crops in and uh, get them harvested without having to be molested by Union soldiers uh, plundering. That was that was a primary one. A secondary one was uh, there was still a belief that if the Confederates invaded the North, that uh, Northerners would flock to the Southern cause. That proved not to be the case again, just as it was during the Maryland campaign of 1862. But the biggest one, I think, other than trying to get the war out of the South for the summer, uh, was the belief that if the Confederates could capture a Northern capital, and I think Lee had focused on Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania, he believed that that would not only force a war-weary North to be interested in, in seeking peace, but more importantly than that, uh, might trigger recognition from the French and British governments, which would then put uh, all sorts of pressure on the North to make peace and uh, allow the South to leave. So those were some pretty high stakes, and that's what was involved in the decision to invade the North. Union cavalryman John Buford was in Gettysburg to meet Lee's Confederates. John Buford was, as you say, a man of few words, but what he did say usually had a great deal of meaning. He also had an extremely dry, biting sense of humor. Uh, my favorite story about that is, is on June 28, 1863, Alfred Pleasanton arranged for the promotion of three very young officers, Custer, Farnsworth, and Merritt, directly from captain to brigadier general, jumping over a lot of guys who were senior and a lot of guys like Buford who had paid their dues. And that same day, uh, Buford's provost marshal captured a spy outside of Frederick, Maryland. And Buford ordered that the man be hanged from a tree and that the body be left there for three days. And uh, a delegation of citizens from the city came out to complain to Buford about something they viewed as being barbarity. And one of them asked Buford why he hadn't sent the spy back to Washington to be interrogated. Buford's response was, I was afraid they'd make him a brigadier general. It really sums up what, what his personality was like. He hated reporters. He, he didn't want reporters around, but he was a guy that had the common touch with the men. They called him old reliable. They called him honest John. They would follow him anywhere and do anything he asked of them because they knew that he wasn't asking them to do anything he wasn't willing to do to himself. And I think the fact that he remained loyal to the Union, despite his own Southern roots and despite having Confederates in, in his family and his wife's family, really speaks volumes for the sort of character that the man had. As the Confederates advanced towards Gettysburg, Buford knew he faced overwhelming odds. He'd been ordered to leave the reserve brigade in Maryland to guard wagon trains and lines of communication and supply. And the, not only was the reserve brigade made up of the regular cavalry units assigned to the Army of the Potomac, sort of a Praetorian guard, if you will, uh, it was also the largest brigade. So when he goes into Pennsylvania on June 30th, he has two brigades with him. He's got Gamble's brigade, which was roughly 1,800 men, and he's got Tom Devon's brigade, which was about 1,100. So he's got... 2,900 cavalrymen and about 100 horse artillerists to hold off 10,000 Confederates. John Buford knew the armies were about to clash and formulated a plan that would allow the Union Army to hold the high ground south of Gettysburg. He had an eye for terrain, and as he, he came in from the south, coming up the Emmitsburg Road from uh, the, the Mason-Dixon line, basically, uh, could see 
the high ground to the south and, and east of the town of what eventually became the fishhook line. And he also saw the, the rolling terrain to the west. He knew that the, the, the largest force of Confederates was going to be coming from the west. So consequently, in order to defend that high, high ground to the south and east of town, you're not going to choose that as being the first place you're going to defend. Instead, you're going to conduct a, a delaying action that trades space for time, or time for space, I guess is a better way to put it. And you're going to defend to the west so you can ultimately fall back to the position that you want to, uh, where you want to make your final stand. And that's exactly the sort of a delaying action, a covering force action, to use the modern term, that Buford designs and implements on the night of June 30th and day of July 1st of 1863. Though the actions of Buford on July 1st that allowed the Union Army to maintain the high ground have received a lot of attention, Union Colonel William Gamble's actions on that same afternoon might have been just as significant. On two different occasions during, during the afternoon phase of the fighting, uh, Gamble's brigade is going to provide some really critical service. Uh, at one point in the afternoon phase of the fighting, Gamble recognized that the 52nd North Carolina Infantry of Pettigrew's brigade was getting ready to flank the 121st Pennsylvania's position on this, at the southern end of the line on McPherson's Ridge, and that because the North Carolinians were down in the swale in front of the Herbs Farm, they couldn't be seen by the Pennsylvanians. So Gamble will send the 8th Illinois Cavalry trotting out on the Fairfield Road and have them form up and, and prepare as if they were going to make a mounted charge. The, the, the bugles, the, the movement of the horses into, into line of battle, the, the tearing down of fences to clear the way in turn caught the attention of Colonel James Keith Marshall, the commander of the 52nd North Carolina, who in turn ordered his command not only to halt, but to stop and form a, a hollow square in echelon, as it's called, which is a defensive tactic to defend against cavalry charges by infantry. Uh, so that in turn allowed the 121st Pennsylvania and the rest of Chapman Biddle's brigade to safely fall back from nearly being flanked on McPherson's Ridge to take up a position on Seminary Ridge. And then the rest of Gamble's brigade, which was posted as the far left flank of the, of the first corps position on Seminary Ridge, is going to lay down severe fire with their, their uh, single shot breech loading carbines, such as to not only slow, but in fact, halt the advance of, of Confederate infantry that bought time for the first corps to begin to evacuate back to Cemetery Hill. And then ultimately, uh, Buford will order, after receiving orders to do something about the line of advancing Confederates, uh, Buford will order his two brigades to form up in a mounted line of battle and prepare to make a charge. And the combination of some orders that were received by James H. Lane of North Carolina uh, to halt and this movement by the Union Cavalry, which was described by, by Winfield Scott Hancock, no less, as, as being a, a magnificent sight of the Union Cavalry being, standing there, in Hancock's words, unshaken and undaunted, stopped the Confederate advance and, and allowed the rest of the First Corps troops to successfully fall back to the cover of the Union artillery that's now bristling 
on East and West Cemetery Hill. Oliver Otis Howard, the man who received much of the blame for the stunning defeat at Chancellorsville, believed that his decision to post men on Cemetery Hill on the afternoon of July 1st was key to the Union victory at Gettysburg. Yet, Howard still received criticism for not withdrawing the Union troops fighting to the north and west of town sooner. Was this Howard's redemption? Well, you know, a lot of people think that Howard should have had pulled the First Corps back, at least to Seminary Ridge, and, and, and perhaps not send the 11th Corps as far forward as he did. And then, of course, Francis Barlow made things even worse by, by extending his division all the way up to the knoll that now uh, bears his name. But, you know, it's easy to second-guess that stuff after the fact, uh, but it, at this point it was a fluid, unfolding situation. Uh, Howard was thrust into command uh, kind of unexpectedly, uh, they, the, the Union Army at that point was outnumbered. Um, his feeling was if he had pulled back closer to town, then the Confederates would have, would have broken their lines even closer to Cemetery Hill, and it would have been even more of a problem. Yeah, but the one thing he did do is he posted his reserves, uh, a division on Cemetery Hill, uh, and that formed the nucleus for the, you know, the famous Union fishhook position, uh, which turned out to be a great defensive line. Um, so I, I give him a great deal of credit for that. Some people said Reynolds had actually issued, you know, told Howard through an aide to, to post men on Cemetery Hill. Howard vehemently denied that. I, you know, it's quite possible Reynolds had thought that and may have told people that. Um, but I think Howard also acted independently and did that on his own. So you can give him credit for that. I, I don't think he found the redemption at Gettysburg that he, that he would have wanted. Uh, the 11th Corps was broken and was driven back uh, to Cemetery Hill. Um, so, and, and, you know, through no fault of, of the soldiers. I mean, they were, they were outnumbered. Um, the, you know, uh, Ewell's division, Ewell's Corps uh, showed up at just the right time and the right place to uh, allow the Confederates to attack on two sides. So I don't think there was there was much to do. And poor Howard, you know, once again found Confederates on his flank at Gettysburg, as he had done at uh, Chancellorsville. This time he was aware they were coming, though. So uh, it it wasn't it wasn't the rude surprise that it had been at Chancellorsville. Following Stonewall Jackson's death at Chancellorsville, Richard Ewell, a West Point graduate and Mexican-American War veteran, took command of the Confederate Second Corps. On July 1st, Ewell fought well pushing the Union troops fighting to the north of Gettysburg through the town and ultimately onto Cemetery Hill. What didn't happen next is one of the most debated decisions made during the battle and during the war. General Lee ordered Ewell to take the hills to the south of town, including Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill, if practicable. But Ewell, after a long day of fighting, decided not to. Gary Edelman of the American Battlefield Trust. I mean, I think this is, uh, you know, one of the enduring questions, and it doesn't get any better when, you know, you have popular movies saying how easy it would have been, you know, for the Confederates to have simply taken Culp's Hill and then they would have won the battle at Gettysburg and then we'd live in a much different place today because the Civil War goes in the Confederate favor. It's real easy to say that, of course. Um, you know, not a whole lot of people said that, you know, right after the battle or anything like that or when Robert E. Lee was alive. You know, so my overall message is, you know, it's really easy for us to refight the Battle of Gettysburg, and we know exactly what commanders should have done, and this is human nature. Just like right now, we think we know better than the people of the past. If only they'd listened to us, um, they would have done things better than us. So I go into it from that perspective, first of all, is trying to put myself in, myself in their shoes. And in this case, you know, Robert E. Lee had 
good subordinates, but a changing army at this point, of course. You know, he had three corps, and two of his corps commander had never commanded a corps before, trusted people, but only at a certain level. And in Richard Ewell, he performed practically brilliantly on the way up to Gettysburg. He had reason to believe that Ewell would do what would be necessary, and he told Ewell to take the heights south of town if practicable. Now, that could have meant Culp's Hill. It could have meant Cemetery Hill. You know, it's not like these hills had well-known names at the time. You know, most battlefield names are, you know, contrivances to get us to understand, you know, what happened on battlefields later. And, you know, what people don't know about this whole situation is, is several things. One is that the Confederates, you know, they failed to account the Confederates fought one of the bloodiest days of the Civil War already that day. It's July 1st, 1863, some 17,000 casualties. That's as bloody practically as the Battle of Fredericksburg, you know, or you could say Kennesaw Mountain and Peach Tree Creek and Bryce's Crossroads combined. It was a terrible day, which would disorganize any army. Two, the Confederates had credible reports of Union soldiers in their rear. They had to detach brigades to deal with those particular threats as they went. Three, the Confederates who were going to maybe even be fresh enough to take those hills were late in arriving. It was six, seven, eight o'clock until they're arriving on the field. And four, the Confederates actually did send some troops up to Culp's Hill. And, um, you know, what people don't know is there's a small skeletal force of Union soldiers up there, 400 of them or so. And these men ran into some of these Union soldiers. They didn't know if it was 400 in the dark or 40,000. They ran into those soldiers and found Culp's Hill occupied, and they did not capture Culp's Hill that day. I think Cemetery Hill would have been a bridge too far anyway. Um, and um, they would attack those hills, you know, the next day when there's 20 times more Union troops up there. So in one very long sentence, that's how I feel about it. With John Reynolds dead, Meade looked to General Winfield Scott Hancock to take charge of the field, passing over Oliver Otis Howard, who was mortified and disgraced by the slight. Meade trusted Hancock and took advantage of his ability to promote officers outside of the chain of command. When the fighting started on July 1st, Meade was still down at his headquarters in Tawnytown, Maryland, which is about 14 miles away. So he was getting messages from the battle. Um, it wasn't quite clear what was going on, so he decided he would send Hancock uh, up to, to personally take charge of the situation. Uh, at that point, he did know that Reynolds had died. Uh, I guess he, he knew that Howard was in command of the field. Um, Howard outranked Hancock. So that, that posed a bit of a problem. But Henry Halleck's orders to me that Hardy had brought to him in the middle of the night did say that he could, he could uh, promote anyone over someone who outranked him if necessary, and Meade definitely took advantage. So he sent Hancock to, to oversee uh, the fighting at Gettysburg. Um, when Hancock arrived and told Howard about uh, what Meade had told him to do, Howard was, as he later said in a message to Meade, he was mortified. Uh, he thought that this was a, a personal, you know, Meade had no confidence in him, and this was a direct result of Meade feeling he had made bad decisions at Gettysburg. Uh, when Meade arrived, he assured Howard he meant no such thing, and Howard was greatly, greatly relieved. Uh, but that was one of the things that his orders did let him do. He could promote generals above generals they out, uh, who outranked them. He did that with, uh, he did not like Abner Doubleday, who, who, when Reynolds died, took command of the First Corps. Uh, and so he promoted John Newton over Abner Doubleday, which uh, permanently embittered Doubleday. Doubleday um, criticized Meade for the, the rest of his life. 
as a result of that. James Longstreet, Robert E. Lee's old war horse, hoped the Confederates would fight a defensive battle in a position of their choosing. However, Longstreet quickly learned that the Union Army possessed the high ground and dislodging them would be difficult. Lee, on the other hand, was determined to attack the Union Army, where he perceived they were weak, on their left flank. James Hessler, the author of Gettysburg's Peach Orchard and Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. Obviously, the so-called Lee-Longstreet controversy is uh, is, is mired in as deep of a controversy as the so-called Meade-Sickles debate is. So, you know, there are... Um, we have, we have a handful of accounts. We have things that Longstreet said after the fact, and you either have to believe what Longstreet said or not believe it. Uh, there are things that Lafayette McClaws said later, and you either believe McClaws or you don't. And, you know, it's, so it's, it's taking a handful of accounts and, and kind of saying, okay, you know, do you believe them? And if you do, which ones do you believe or which ones do you think were, were sort of too biased by, you know, all of the lost cause BS that happened later. But it's my belief, um, it's my interpretation that on the night, as early as the night of July 1st, when they were examining the Union position, uh, I believe even at that point, Longstreet started to appreciate that uh, this is going to be a difficult position for us to take. Um, they talk about as Longstreet goes back to camp on the night of July 1st, I think it's Arthur Freeman who talks about, you know, that Longstreet was very somber that night and said, you know, there was going to be a difficult position to take. So I really think even as the morning of July 2nd is even starting, Longstreet's probably got this notion in his head that, uh, you know, we could have some problems here. And notice I didn't even go into the whole debate about whether or not Longstreet wanted to fight a defensive battle and move towards Washington and all of that stuff. Notice I didn't even go into that. I'll just, I'll just say that I think the morning of the second, Longstreet already knows there's going to be challenges. So they have some reconnaissance done. Um, Captain Samuel Johnston does the most famous of those reconnaissances. And Johnston seems to tell Lee that he made it as far as Big Round Top during the morning hours. Maybe Little Round Top. I think he went to Big Round Top. But in any event, Johnston seems to tell Lee that he went to one of the Round Tops. And the Union left did not extend that far. So far as what Johnston is seeing at that morning hour, the reconnaissance is, is not wildly inaccurate. But by the time he gets back to Lee, and Lee and Longstreet have been talking, and Lee has also been talking to Ewell, who doesn't want to attack the Union right, you know, all of this sort of formulates this plan in Lee's head that the Union left flank is going to be the place to hit. That's going to be up to Longstreet, because that's Longstreet's part of the field. Then you get into this whole thing where Lafayette McClaws, who is one of Longstreet's division commanders, comes onto the field, and McClaws uh, is supposedly told, um, attack perpendicular to the road, which would sort of suggest that Lee wants McClaws to drive up the Emmitsburg Road in towards Gettysburg. I think that's based on a faulty assumption that the Union left flank is somewhere that it is not. So the long story short here is I think Lee's making a plan of attack against the left flank that they don't really understand where that flank is. Longstreet says, no, I want you to be parallel to the road. Lee says, no, I want him the other way. So you have sort of, again, Lee and Longstreet butting heads a little bit. Uh, one of the guys later says that Longstreet, you know, seemed to be concealing some anger. Uh, and you have, again, all of this kind of bubbling to the surface. His Longstreet begins to move into position. Finally, when he gets going at about 12 o'clock or so in the afternoon, he's going to have difficulty maneuvering his troops through the back country 
uh, west of Seminary Ridge, it's going to take Longstreet's Corps, depending on your estimates, somewhere in the vicinity of three hours to only march a handful of miles. And by the time he reaches Seminary Ridge at 3 to 3.30 in the afternoon, the Union left flank is radically different than what they expected to see. So not only are they launching this thing with a misapprehension of where the Union left flank is, but, you know, by the time you got there at 3, 3.30 in the afternoon, you're relying on reconnaissance work that is, uh, you know, anywhere from six, seven to eight hours old. And all of that's, you know, ultimately going to contribute into what I think is a uh, very difficult attack for Longstreet to manage. Daniel Sickles, known before the war as the New York congressman who killed his wife's lover and was acquitted by reason of temporary insanity, was in command of the Union Third Corps. One of the things that I was struck by was what seemed to be this characteristic of everywhere he went, um, you know, he seemed to get, he seemed to earn the favor of the guy who was one level above him. And, you know, that starts with James Buchanan, uh, when Buchanan was the minister in England and Sickles was working for Buchanan and Buchanan took a liking uh, to him. But then when, when the war starts uh, and Sickles at that time is out of a job, uh, Sickles, you know, needed somebody to latch on to. And I think he kind of uh, latched on to Abraham Lincoln at really the perfect time for both men. Uh, Sickles at that time kind of needed a career. And Lincoln was looking for Democrats to prop up his, his unpopular war effort. Um, so it was a great example of the two of them kind of coming across each other at the right time. And as many people know, Lincoln uh, then enables Sickles' rise within the Army of the Potomac and ultimately helps him um, earn appointments to, um, to Brigadier General and then later on to Major General. So it doesn't stop there because, again, as many people know, as we get into late 1862, 1863, Sickles, again, falls under the influence of another rising star, and that's Joe Hooker. Um, so as Joe Hooker is rising in the ranks within the Army of the Potomac, and Hooker gets promoted uh, to Corps commander and then commander of the Army, Sickles kind of goes into Hooker's backfill, if you will, and um, you know follows up behind him. And ultimately, all of this helps put Sickles in command of the Third Corps with um, really not a lot of commensurate military experience to, uh, to justify it. The memory of what happened at Chancellorsville was also fresh in the mind of Daniel Sickles. There's a couple things that happened at Chancellorsville, and of course, the one that everybody always talks about is his removal from Hazel Grove uh, on May 3rd. And that is the one that everybody always talks about as being the most significant influencer of what he does at Gettysburg. So at Chancellorsville that morning, uh, Sickles and his corps, they're kind of out in front of the remainder of Hooker's army in a salient, you know, very much like what we see at Gettysburg, kind of out in front of the main army. Uh, and Hooker wanted to contract his lines. He ordered Sickles to pull back into the main lines. Sickles obeyed orders, and he fell back. And as he fell out of Hazel Grove, which is sort of described as a flat, open plateau that was perfect for artillery, uh, Edward Porter Alexander rolled his Confederate artillery into Hazel Grove and uh, proceeded to basically pound the Union Army out of position. So that's the one that everybody always talks about. But I think even more deeply than that was on the previous day when Jackson unleashed his flank attack onto Oliver Howard in the 11th Corps. I think the memory of that flank attack 
ran deep with Sickles, and frankly, it probably ran deep with all of the commanders in the Army of the Potomac. Nobody was going to want to be in that position again when these two armies met again. So what I think is influencing Sickles just as much as Hazel Grove on the morning of July 2nd, I think Sickles doesn't want to be the guy who has this wood lot in front of him that he can't see behind. And Sickles doesn't want to be the guy who's going to have Confederates pouncing out of the woods onto his flank. And I think it almost becomes an obsession to the point where, um, you know, by the early afternoon of July 2nd, Sickles wants to clear the, you know, clear out, get up into what he views as some uh, better ground and more commanding ground and avoid being the recipient of a flank attack. So I think, I think in my mind, those are the two primary things that um, Sickles is thinking about when remembering Chancellorsville. Sickles and Meade butted heads long before Gettysburg. Whenever you think of their respect merits as army officers, I think even the most solid Meade supporter would have to admit that, you know, if you were looking to call one of these two guys to have fun on a Saturday night, Meade would probably not be the guy you call. You know, again, solid, responsible, dependable, you know, many things that, that Sickles is not. But when I started doing my research, one of the things that I wanted to, I wanted to better understand when did these two guys run afoul of each other? Because what I felt at the time that I was doing that book, and you have to understand, I mean, that book was published in 2009. I was probably doing my heaviest research and writing in about 2007. But at the time I was doing this, you know, what you kept running across was me, the competent professional versus Sickles, the bumbling amateur. And interpretation of this had really gotten simplified uh, to and I'm looking at you, Gettysburg Magazine, because a lot of this would be in those types of articles, um, which you know now today you see a lot of this sort of thing on Facebook. But I mean, the idea that uh, you know the the solid professional versus the foolish amateur, and that was how people were just always interpreting the relationship between those two guys. And I wanted to understand was that really where it started? And what I came down to was that no, it went deeper than that. It went back to the, the winter of 1862 into the spring of 1863, where you have these two very different personalities. At the time, Sickles is one of the popular kids because he's hanging out with Hooker, the Army commander, and, you know, Meade was kind of excluded. So you had these personality differences uh, and social exclusions going on between these two guys that ultimately when Meade assumes command of the Army of the Potomac on the eve of the Gettysburg campaign, almost instantly the tables are turned. And now now it's sort of the situation where the unpopular kid in school has just got elected class president. And, you know, the pop- the popular kid, in this case Sickles, had to, uh, you know, had to kind of scramble. And I think that sort of relationship going back to 62 with um, these two guys really helps explain a lot of the failure to communicate on the morning of July 2nd, 1863. There's been much debate on whether Sickles' decision to move the Union left flank to the Emmitsburg Road ultimately bolstered the Union defense, but he clearly disobeyed orders. If Sickles obeys the orders as we understand them, Sickles would have been expected to extend the left of Hancock's Second Corps um, and essentially run his Third Corps line to 
you know, what, what they're basically referring to at the time is this range of hills south of Gettysburg. Nobody is pointing to it and saying, hey, go to Little Round Top, you go to Big Round Top, you go to Powers Hill, that, that sort of thing. If Sickles obeys the orders, uh, he's extending Hancock's line, and Sickles would have been running the Third Corps line partially through you know, the lower end of Cemetery Ridge, which for anybody who knows the battlefield, would kind of run past uh, the George Weikert farm and uh, over something called Munchauer Knoll and eventually to, to Little Round Top. A lot of the ground in around the Weikert farm is low. It's rocky. If you've ever been out there when the Park Service has done a controlled burn, you know, a lot of times that ground is covered by tall, thick grass, and you might just think it's sort of a, uh, a marshy field. But when they burn the grass off, there's a lot of rocks in that field, which would have made it difficult to place artillery. In front of that, in front of that was and still is uh, a woodlot and Hawks Ridge, which would basically block the view that the Third Corps would have had of the Emmitsburg Road. Now, I'm just describing the terrain. There's going to be a lot of people listening saying, well, wait a minute, he could have put his artillery on Munchauer's Knoll. He could have put his artillery on Little Round Top. There's going to be a lot of naysayers wanting to interject here, and that's fine. All I'm doing is describing the artillery. I'm, I'm sorry, describing the position and its use or lack of potential use for artillery. We're not getting into what he could have or should have done just yet. We're just sort of saying this is what the terrain looked like. So to contrast that, what he felt was, you know, by moving out towards the Emmitsburg Road, you get more open ground, you get more uh, maneuverability for your troops, more room to place your artillery. And when you get up to that Emmitsburg Road Ridge on which the Peach Orchard sits, you have a much better view of Seminary Ridge, from which ultimately the Confederates did launch their attack. Both Robert E. Lee and Daniel Sickles valued the position of the Peach Orchard. You know, it's interesting, and I touch on this more in the Peach Orchard book than I did in the Sickles book, but it's almost like if you use the the modern terrain assessment concept of Kakoa, which starts with a K for uh, key terrain, or what some of the military theorists of the time might have um, defined as decisive terrain. Lee, in his instructions and his orders to Longstreet on July 2nd, clearly seems to define that same elevation along the Emmitsburg Road to, as you said, places artillery in and um, try to pound the, uh, the Union Army out of position. So Lee definitely values that ground. Sickles values that ground. Um, you know, you could argue whether or not Longstreet values the ground because we all know he's kind of reluctant about all of this. But the only guy who clearly doesn't value the ground is George Meade, um, you know, which, which ultimately leads again to the problems that Meade and Sickles have. Longstreet didn't expect Sickles to be positioned in the Peach Orchard and was forced to adjust his attack. When Longstreet and his men start to approach their objectives and they realize that the Union left flank doesn't look like what we expected because as the Confederates get out there, Sickles has already moved forward and Sickles occupies the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road. And then they can probably see Sickles' left extending through the wheat field and, and maybe even out to, um, to House Ridge. The first thing they realize 
is that any plan to attack up the Emmitsburg Road is not going to work because if they hit the Peach Orchard and move up the Emmitsburg Road, you're going to have a good portion of Sickles' first division uh, under David Burney in your flank and your rear. So they can't attack up the Emmitsburg Road. they got to modify fast. They end up uh, doing the best they can and stretching Hood further around but then when Hood begins his attack, rather than proceeding directionally in the Emmets, towards the Emmitsburg Road, he moves towards the Round Tops. So Hood's division starts moving out over rugged, you know, rocky, uh, wooded, rugged ground uh, and will strike Third Corps troops at Devil's Den. Uh, and then, of course, at the wheat field, and the wheat field especially is some of the, uh, some of the bloodiest fighting of the entire war. Confederates will capture Devil's Den, but while Sickles' troops are kind of acting as this sort of unintentional shock absorber, Fifth Corps Union reinforcements do get the little round top and will ultimately push Longstreet's guys back. Some of the most brutal fighting of the battle took place at the aptly named Devil's Den. Uh, So first of all, let me hit with, you know, that we don't know that it was called Devil's Den before the battle. The local people, some local people in the decades after the war said it was called Devil's Den even at the time of the battle. But we have no written documentation um, suggesting that it was called that before the battle. In other words, the first time it appears in print is a few days after the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, But later people would say, oh, we always called it that. So we really don't know. Some people remembered it being called Raccoon Den or the Big Rocks, and eventually a snake would become associated with it. But what we do know is that no matter what, it would be a wild place to fight a battle, and it was a terrible place to fight a battle, and it was a battle with ultimately 5,500 soldiers producing 1,800 casualties. It was a terrible back-and-forth fight. The Confederates came from... Um, Seminary Ridge, which is extension is called Warfield Ridge along the Emmitsburg Road, and the sort of Georgians, Texans, Arkansans, and Alabamians who would come to struggle around there um, commingled right off the bat. The front lines under Robinson and Law, Robertson and Law, that's the Texans and Arkansans versus the Alabamians. Um, be, because they split apart and then a gap was filled, you're going to end up having these disparate brigades fighting there at first. The Union forces from New York, Pennsylvania, and Maine, um, supported by a battery of New Yorkers, front and rear, um, are going to be outnumbered by the Confederates. They're going to have an impossible position to hold, and eventually the Union will be pushed back. The Yankees will fight back and recapture the top of the hill. Um, you know, with some of the more famous versions, you know, parts happening in the battle, you've got the 124th New York's commander, Ellis, saying, the men must see us today. You've got an Alabama colonel, the 44th Alabama, who is just totally flattened by exhaustion, but he listened to the battle and wrote about what he heard about at that time. You've got other Union reinforcements coming up, the 40th New York, the Mozart Regiment coming up, uh, uh, up the valley fighting like tigers, supposedly, um, and they recapture the crest, but then the Confederates have their reinforcements. You've got uh, Henry Rock Benning's Georgians that show up, the 2nd, 15th, 17th, and 20th Georgia. Some of the same troops that had defended Burnside Bridge the previous year show up and, you know, um, just absolutely wipe the Union Army from the crest. But all of those Confederate troops, the Alabamians, the Texans, the Georgians, um, and even the Arkansans had suffered so much. They'd used up most of their ammunition, um, and they'd suffered on average more than 30% casualties. None of those units ended up joining the other Confederates who attacked Little Round Top. So Devil's Den's biggest sort of result you know, is this terrible fight with 50% more casualties than Little Round Top, 
but that really just sapped the Confederates of strength, which in a way was Dan Sickles' whole argument. He's the third corps commander that moved his troops out to the Emmitsburg Road and said, I fought him out that way instead of fighting him back this way, closer to the line. And in that case, I don't always agree with Sickles, but in that case, it seems to have worked that way. Many have heard the story of Sickles coolly puffing a cigar as he left the field after his leg was wounded. The scene was, and it's actually relatively late in the day, it's probably approaching 6 o'clock or so when this happens, but as the uh, Peach Orchard and Emmitsburg Road is coming under increasing artillery fire from the Confederates, Sickles is at his headquarters a couple hundred yards behind the line at the Trossel Farm, and he rode up onto a small knoll near the barn when a solid shot came skipping by, uh, and I say skipping, it didn't even strike his horse, but it just sort of skipped by and, and glanced off of his, his right leg. Uh, he insisted later he did not even know that he was hurt until he touched his leg and his hand was wet and he realized his leg was bleeding. So he was, he was, car- he was, car- he was taken off of his horse. Uh, some accounts indicate he's almost half falling to the ground, which, I mean, is understandable. His leg isn't functioning. Uh, and he was propped up against the, uh, the Trossel barn. One of the things that kind of disappointed me when I dived into the story, and I did not set out to do this, I was trying to find good primary accounts that talked about him going off the field smoking that cigar. Because like I said, it was one of my favorite stories. I wasn't trying to, shat- I wasn't trying to shatter the myth. But there really are not any good primary accounts that indicate that that's how it happened. The few accounts we had from some of the officers who were nearby said, you know, Sickles was grievously wounded. His face was turning white. He was losing blood rapidly. And one of the things he kept saying was, don't let me be taken prisoner. Don't let me be taken prisoner. So they kind of prop him up next to the barn, pump him full of uh, stimulants, and wait for an ambulance to come. The artillery fire is increasing, so an ambulance finally shows up. And it's an amazing, uh, kind of an amazing feat in of itself that um, they made it off of the field. But pumped up full of stimulants and propped into this ambulance is how they how they ultimately get him off the battlefield. Yes, they stuffed a cigar in his mouth, and if anybody interpreted that as a uh, uh, as a show of strength and resolve. Uh, that's great, but I honestly think at this point he was probably more stoned on the stimulants than uh, than anything. And they carried him, they took him off the field, and uh, as we knew, know, his leg was uh, amputated shortly thereafter. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the professor turned colonel from Maine, had just received command of the 20th Maine. Well, this this was his first uh, experience actually commanding the regiment in combat because he had been uh, lieutenant uh, colonel under Adelbert Ames. Uh, and learned, you know, the art of war under Ames. Um, so this was his his first test, and uh, I think that's one of the great appeals of of his stories is um, how he rose to the occasion. I mean, he was not a professional military man; he was a Bowdoin College professor. But uh, I, I compare now. I, I think it's kind of like when you know Luke Skywalker discovered that he's a he's a Jedi. It's it's like when 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 Chamberlain joined the twentieth Maine. I, I think he learned that he was actually a warrior, um, and he, he took to it naturally. He actually learned to love the Army life. He wrote to his wife saying how much he was enjoying camp the ground, you know, telling ghost stories you know, with the other officers at night, and um, it, it really appealed to him. And um, he performed admirably at Gettysburg, um, 
it seems to me these days uh, one way that people like to prove their their knowledge of Gettysburg is to say something disparaging about you know Chamberlain in the 20th May like that 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 fight there really didn't matter in the the overall scheme of things you know even the Confederates had captured a little round top it wouldn't have made any difference to the battle and that Chamberlain is just a relentless self promoter you, you hear this stuff all the time. Uh, but it was a very brave fight on um, Little Round Top, and, and he he performed very well. Um, you know, refusing his flank when when the 15th Alabama was coming up on his left, you know, under fire. That was a, a difficult military maneuver to do, especially for a, a, a man in his first you know combat you know command position. Controversy has swirled around whether Chamberlain actually ordered a charge down Little Round Top. There's a little controversy there. How did that charge happen? Um, did Chamberlain actually order it? Did it happen spontaneously? Uh, and it seems like it's probably a little of both. Um, I think Chamberlain thought that they were running out of ammunition. Um, some people said that they, in fact, had plenty of ammunition. Ellis Spear, late in life, would, said that he wasn't aware of being low on ammunition. But I think they probably were low on ammunition. And so he ordered, you know, fixed bayonets. And as he said in, in his report, um, you know, that was all that was necessary. When you fix your bayonets, you know, you, you're going to charge. But at the same time, his color company may have moved forward uh, to protect some wounded soldiers who were lying on the ground in front of them. Uh, and as the co color company moved forward, as the soldiers were, were placing their bayonets on their their muskets, um, it just turned into a great sweep down the south spur of Little Round Top, uh, and, it, and it just pushed the, the exhausted uh, Alabama troops um, back and then up, back up Big Round Top. The 15th Alabama marched 24 miles to reach the battlefield before being given orders to attack Little Round Top. He had a terrible day. I mean, they did have to march a long way just to get to the battlefield, uh, and then as they were advancing, um, they became, they, they were shot at by U.S. sharpshooters. So Oates had them pursue these sharpshooters and they ended up climbing all the way up big round top. Uh, he sent men to get, uh, water, you know, they collected the, all the canteens and went off to get water for these exhausted, thirsty, foot sore soldiers and, and the canteen bearers were captured. So not only were they exhausted and, and being shot at by sharpshooters, they had no water. They were they were thirsty. So Oates was hoping that they could could remain on Big Round Top and, and fortify that position, but uh, a, a an aide from Brigade Command showed up and said, nope, this is not where you're supposed to be. You have to go attack that hill down there. So then they had to climb down Big Round Top and then advanced and in, in fight uh, the 20th Maine, who had just arrived on Little Round Top maybe 15, 20 minutes beforehand. So, yeah, they were, they were, they were tired. They were thirsty. Uh, they had a miserable day um, um, even before they, they met the, the 20th Maine. So you have to give them kudos for, for the fight that they put up as well. Longstreet captured the peach orchard in Devil's Den, but failed to gain Little Round Top despite the hard fighting of his men. Longstreet later called all of this some of the best three hours of fighting that his men ever did on any battlefield. But by about 7 o'clock in the evening, I think what Longstreet realized was every time he was there to 
uh, to potentially exploit a break in the union lines. Union reinforcements were there to push him right back. And he, he doesn't get Little Round Top. He doesn't get Cemetery Ridge. And when the day ends, uh, Longstreet will have to settle for a lot of Sickles' advanced line, Devil's Den and uh, the Peach Orchard, Emmitsburg Road specifically. Lee considered July 2nd a partial success, especially the capture of the Peach Orchard, land from which he believed Confederate artillery could pound the Union position on Cemetery Ridge. To me, and this is one of the reasons why I've focused a lot of recent work, especially on the Peach Orchard, is because I think the Peach Orchard is probably the most underrated piece of terrain on the battlefield. Because not only does it drive what happens on July 2nd, but as you said, Lee in his own report considers it all to have been a partial success. Maybe not a victory, but not a defeat either. And with this partial success... Lee is thinking that we can use the Peach Orchard as an artillery position to assault the higher ground beyond in Cemetery Ridge. And it's literally the fighting of the second day ultimately leading into the decision to to launch Pickett's charge. Lee envisioned problems in withdrawing from Gettysburg, which contributed to his decision to attack once again on July 3rd. You know, Lee talks about in, in his report, in one of his reports, he talks about uh, essentially you're coming unexpectedly upon General Meade's army and thinking of the favorable results that might ensue from a victory on Pennsylvania soil and the difficulty in withdrawing his army within the face of the enemy. Uh, those were factors that influenced Lee to continue to fight and to continue to attack. And you can argue you can argue that situation existed at the end of the day on July 1st, but obviously by the end of the day on July 2nd, that situation exists even more because the, both armies are more or less fully concentrated by July 2nd. So, you know, if Lee pulls back at the end of the day on July 2nd, he's fought and bled his army for two days, neither of which he considers to be a defeat. But he's fought and bled his army for two days for pulling back for no apparent purpose. And then again, you still have to do all of this in the, uh, uh, the face of the enemy with, by the way, your main body of uh, cavalry under Jeb Stewart only finally arriving on the field on the afternoon of the second. So I think all of those things kind of factor into what Lee felt would have been a really difficult decision to withdraw on July 2nd. Uh, you know, ultimately, ultimately, uh, July 4th, two days later, he decides, okay, the conditions are okay and I can withdraw. So you could argue the only thing that really changed over the course of those two days uh, was the arrival of Stewart. And as, you know, most Gettysburg enthusiasts know, for whatever shortcomings Jeb Stewart has during the campaign, uh, he plays a pretty uh, crucial role in the uh, Confederate retreat. July 3rd has become famous for Pickett's Charge, a bold attack across open fields on the Union Center. Pickett's Charge, however, was just one piece of Lee's plan for July 3rd. Let me assure anybody who's listening out there, we intend no slight to Pettigrew and Trimble by calling it Pickett's Charge. I actually wanted to call it uh, Pickett, Pettigrew, Trimble on the cover of the book, but I got overruled uh, by my wonderful publisher, so I just want to call that out. But, yeah, anyways, in terms of Lee's plan, you know, first of all, you want to remember July 3rd, Lee basically has a plan A, 
that then turns into plan B. And what Lee essentially says plan A is, is to general plan is unchanged and we're going to uh, apparently renew attacks again on the flanks. Coordinated attacks. What I think he's really stressing more of on July 3rd is coordination or what he refers to in his report as concert of action. So I think the initial plan would have been for Ewell and Longstreet to press the confe- to press the Union flanks, to press the Union flanks at Culp's Hill and the Roundtops at the same time on the morning of July 3rd to really prevent Meade from being able to throw reinforcements back and forth. That falls apart because, as Lee says, Ewell is engaged at Culp's Hill at about 4.30 in the morning before Longstreet was ready. And Ewell is going to fight for about seven hours at Culp's Hill, finally have to call off uh, any attempt to coordinate attack on the flanks. So now Lee needs to figure something else out. He's not going to retreat, fall back, for some of the reasons that we just spoke about. Uh, But I always say that as a licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg, probably the most common battle-related question that I get is, what was Lee thinking on July 3rd? You know, you stand there at the Virginia Monument, you look across the open field, you say, what was Lee thinking? Well, Lee certainly did not order an attack that he thought was going to fail. You know, this idea that it was some desperate gamble by some uh, half-crazed old man, you know, like we kind of see in the movie Gettysburg, which I love, by the way, but um, kind of this notion that, you know, Lee's kind of rolling the dice here uh, is kind of ridiculous. What Lee says, and, and as you referenced Armistead Long, is that what they thought was in examining the Union position, looking for an alternative, we're not going to hit the flanks, What's the alternative? They look for sort of where the slope of Cemetery Ridge cuts through the Emmitsburg Road, and what they thought they could do is if they could concentrate troops at that point, uh, they could potentially cut the Union line in half and then make it uh, difficult for one wing of the Union Army to uh, support the other. That's the general plan for the infantry, and what I think Lee clearly says is that he needs it to be backed up by artillery support. And not artillery as we normally think of it with the famous cannonade, but what he thinks is they're going to be able to converge fire from places like the Peach Orchard, converge fire to overpower the Union artillery, and then also press the Confederate artillery forward to protect the infantry's flanks. So again, concertive action, heavy use of your artillery, focus your infantry on that one point. Uh, And, you know, obviously we know it didn't succeed, but Lee thought it could. Lee hoped to soften the Union Center with a massive artillery barrage. The sights and sounds of that cannonade made lasting impressions on many soldiers. You can get the sense that these men just could not describe how loud it was, how much the the earth was shaking. I mean, it went on for an hour, an hour and a half, uh, just nonstop, um, you know, thunder, man-made thunder. Uh, one soldier from the 19th Maine said that if you had stuck a knitting needle in the ground, it seemed like it would have been shot off like a half a dozen times. Uh, there are other members of the 19th Maine who are as, serving as pickets out in, in, by the Kadori farm. Uh, and they were saying, you know, the, it was just the entire farm buildings were, were shaking like it was an earthquake. And, and perhaps one of my favorite stories, it's, it's from Abner Small, the, the guy from the 16th Maine. Uh, he was serving as an aide to a, the brigade commander, 
who suddenly noticed that the, uh, the the flag bearer had disappeared, you know, during this this onslaught. And so he sent uh, Abner Small in one direction to find him, and 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 the brigade commander went off in the other, and, and found the soldier, you know, hiding behind a wall with the flag. Um, so he yanked him to his feet. Uh, just then, a shell exploded nearby, spraying them with dirt. Uh, and he grabbed the soldier and he brought him over to this crater that had just been formed, planted the flag there, and said, "You stand here, or I'm going to put you among the batteries." And, and then he rode off, and he told Small as he was riding off, he says, you know, chances are there's not going to be another shell hitting the exact same spot, so he should be safe enough. And then he rode off, and within minutes he was shot in the shoulder by a sharpshooter. When asked why the Confederate attack on July 3rd failed, George Pickett apparently said the Yankees had something to do with it. When we talk about Pickett's charge and the Yankees had something to do with it, I do think it starts with the artillery uh, and the management of the artillery by uh, General Henry Hunt, you can't, you cannot, uh, you cannot uh, underestimate the the value of what General Hunt does on July third. I think they manage the uh, the Union artillery well. I mean, look, it, you know, the the Union could have broke and they could have ran and they could have fell back, and we know they didn't. But if the Confederates had had, had literally overpowered them. Um, to the extent that Lee hoped, uh, the Yankees could have broke. But guys like Hunt, uh, Freeman McGilvery, Alonzo Cushing, uh, artillery commanders of all different ranks, refuse to leave their guns. They return fire. And what they do is they prevent Lee from achieving that first objective, which is to overpower the Union artillery. Not only that, but they also ultimately cause the Confederates to expend their ammunition. You know, Porter Alexander said, I did not intend for that cannonade to go on. I thought we would overpower the Yankees after 15 to 20 minutes, and we would be able to order the infantry forward. But it doesn't happen because of great management and great performance uh, by the, uh, the Union artillery. So that's step one. Then obviously step two would be Union infantry. Uh, they are hitting... For the most part, General Winfield S. Hancock's front, uh, and as we all know, Hancock has a great battle at Gettysburg. Uh, he's vigorous. He's a great leader. He's riding up and down the lines, doing exactly what you would expect a 19th century military leader to do. And uh, again, because of that, you, you have an assurance that ultimately the Union infantry is not going to break. And so, yeah, I think, I think again, whether Pickett said it or not, uh, the Yankees certainly did have something to do with it. After the fighting was over, the survivors were left with the gruesome task of burying the dead. So the, the, the part of the battle you probably don't read about a lot because there's nothing inspirational about it. There's, 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 there's no valor. There's no, you know, conspicuous acts of gallantry. It's just, you know, men who have been, you know, torn to pieces, um, uh, in, in by, by shot and shell and they have to be buried. Uh, so the 19th Maine was one of the units that was told to go out and, and, you know, and do something about it, which meant, you know, digging trenches. And if you could possibly identify someone, maybe putting a little wooden marker with, with the name on it. It just, you know, it was a charnel house. It was, it was, it was horrible after after the battle, and even after the army left, um, the citizens were, you know, forced to deal with with uh, the stench of the decomposing horses, 
uh, the unburied men. I mean, there were hogs that were, you know, eating some of the corpses. Uh, I think it was a sort of the 20th Maine. They they advanced forward, I think, on the 3rd and found a burned-out farmhouse with um, you know, several of them remembered finding, seeing a corpse of a southern soldier who had been burned from, like, the the waist up, and that was all that was left with, like, the legs and, and part of the uniform. And just, you know, war is hell. Um, and sometimes in the accounts of battles, you I don't think you read enough about just how horrible an experience it was. It's not fun, you know. It's it's not a happy occasion at all. It's just uh, just some terrible things. And at this point, people didn't understand PTSD. They didn't understand the effects of this savagery would have on on the people experienced it years later. But you know that had to make an impact on people who experienced these these horrible sights and smells and experiences. Many have debated whether the Union victory at Gettysburg should have been followed by a more vigorous pursuit by General Meade. I'm always surprised by people who ask, like, why didn't Meade pursue Lee after the battle? Well, you know, the answer is he did. He did. And I had talked earlier about how I, I thought, you know, Chancellorsville kind of weighed heavily on Meade. Um, we, we talked about Howard and, and Hooker uh, at Chancellorsville thinking that Lee was retreating and, as a result, making moves or not making moves uh, that led to disaster. So he, he I, I never came across Meade saying this, but I have to think that in the back of his mind, as he's thinking, if 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 before I I'm convinced that Lee is in fact retreating, I want to know for sure, um, which was is wise thinking on his part. But he found out that Meade wasn't uh, that Lee was indeed retreating. He was retreating through Fairfield and South Mountain. But his orders from Henry Halleck said that he had to keep the Army of the Potomac protecting Baltimore and Washington. So if he had gone straight after, followed Lee, you know, straight through South Mountain, which would have been very difficult to do militarily anyway, uh, he would have left Washington and Baltimore uncovered. So he went through Frederick, Maryland, and then headed west across South Mountain in an attempt to cut Lee's army in half. And there was fighting throughout this this period, especially with the Calvaries. They were, they were, they were fighting each other all the way through this. Uh, Eric Wittenberg, who you mentioned earlier, wrote a book called "One Continuous Fight," because that's what it was. But Lee had a had a head start. He had the shorter route to take, so there was I don't think there was much of a chance that that Meade was going to catch the Army of Northern Virginia before they reached uh, the Potomac River. Now, where things get a little fuzzy is um, they, they, they had the, the Confederates kind of bottled up at Williamsport against the river, which was at flood stage and, and difficult to cross at that point. Uh, and, and you had mentioned earlier that Meade did consult with his subordinates. Uh, he had a famous uh, consultation. He did not want to call it a council of war uh, on July 2nd. And he had another one on July 12th. Uh, he was prepared to attack Lee in the morning. But the majority of his corps commanders advised against doing it the next day. They said, we really need a more reconnaissance. We have to know exactly what we're facing. So Meade waited an extra day. And when he finally did move the army forward, Lee was gone. He had crossed the river safely and was back in Virginia. And, you know, it's going to be discussed and debated uh, forever, I think. 
I suspect that even Meade probably thought that it would have been better in retrospect had he not listened to his corps commanders. But again, going back to Chancellorsville, he remembered, I'm sure, uh, that meeting that Joe Hooker had with his corps commanders when they most of them advised to stay and fight, and he overruled them and retreated instead. So I think in the back of his mind, um, Meade was thinking, I, I have to listen to my corps commanders, unlike Joe Hooker, who did not. So I, the ghost of Chancellorsville, I think, haunts uh, a lot of Meade's decisions um, and other soldiers' decisions uh, at Gettysburg. Despite the defeat, Lee hobbled back into Virginia. Lincoln was distressed by this and penned a letter to General Meade that he never sent. My dear General, Lincoln wrote, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. I do think what we view as a great victory today was viewed at the time as a disappointment. And again, as we all probably know, uh, Lincoln felt disappointment at least, you know, seemingly escaping uh, and getting back into Virginia. Uh, Lincoln was disappointed. Newspapers were disappointed. Congress was disappointed. Again, I'm, I'm not here to argue whether or not that was justified. That's just a fact. That's how it was. So I think, you know, as you touched on, it's probably even more important in memory than it is on the actual battlefield uh, because of all of the factors, the fact that it's in Pennsylvania, it's on northern soil, uh, not to forget the fact that Lincoln comes later and delivers, you know, what is considered one of the great speeches of American history. You put all of that together, and I certainly think Gettysburg has, uh, has taken a greater importance in memory, and I certainly think if, you know, in a time right now where history is under attack and people are losing interest in this kind of history, I certainly think Gettysburg has the story that if you're going to focus on one Civil War battle, Gettysburg has everything you want, the drama, the personality conflicts, the big numbers, and it's even got Lincoln coming to talk about it afterwards. Um, I still think that makes Gettysburg, you know, if you can only remember one, one battle, I'm putting my money on Gettysburg, and, I'm, and I'll probably always say that. The political ramifications of the Union victory were significant. You know, I know a lot of people say, well, the, the war is really decided in the West, and that, uh, uh, Gettysburg was not like the turning point of the war that, that some people used to like to claim it was. Uh, I, for one, don't think that there are any real turning points in the war, except maybe the firing on Fort Sumter, which started the war. There are just so many factors uh, that that picking one turning point, I don't think, is possible. Now, if you look at war, you know, war is, is being politics, you know, on a different level. Uh, Gettysburg was extremely important because a, a major southern victory on northern soil uh, within striking distance of the, the national capital, I, I think it would have been terrible politically. Uh, it's quite possible that European powers might have recognized the Confederacy after that. Uh, certainly it might have broken the will of the North to continue the fight. Uh, so in that respect, I think it was very important. I think it was also extremely important that, that Robert E. Lee, who, had, who seemed near invincible at this point in his army, was, was soundly defeated uh, by the Army of the Potomac, which had seen so many uh, bad results um, up until that point. So I think that was vitally important. And, and this was the last time that Lee was able to go on the offensive like this. 
from that point on, it was a, a just declining fortunes for for his army and for the Confederacy. So I, to say that that Gettysburg was was really not that important, I think is is ridiculous. I think it was it was important on, on, on a whole bunch of levels. Vicksburg fell on July fourth, one day after the Union victory at Gettysburg. Strategically, Vicksburg was critical, cutting the South in half and giving control of the Mississippi River to the Union. The victory at Gettysburg, however, was a huge morale boost for the Union Army and supporters of the war in the North. Well, and I've spent 50 years studying it. I made my my first visit to the battlefield as, a, as an eight-year-old third grader and was hooked by the end of the day. And I'm 58 years old now, so I have spent literally 50 years studying the Battle of Gettysburg. So I'm a little bit biased, although I try to be objective about it. I would suggest that in the big scheme of things, Vicksburg was probably more important simply because the, the fall of, of Vicksburg meant that the Mississippi River was solidly in Union hands, which split the Trans-Mississippi completely apart from the rest of the Confederacy and probably cast the die for the outcome of the war. But that said... The, the victory, the Union victory at Gettysburg worked wonders for the morale of the Union soldiers who came to realize that, yes, indeed, they could hold their own against the best that Robert E. Lee had to offer, that, that they could fight just as well. They, you know, you hear all the stories of the men on Cemetery Ridge yelling Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, as they repulsed Pickett's charge. And that, that should tell you how important this was to them and to their own psyches. So, you know, what in, in the big scheme of things, Vicksburg is probably more important. Gettysburg certainly is, is the largest battle in terms of casualties in the Eastern theater of the American Civil War. Uh, it worked wonders for the morale of the Union soldiers. Same time, it wreaked havoc on the Army's command structure because you've got the two officers that Meade depended on most heavily are gone. Reynolds is dead and Hancock is severely wounded. And say what you will about Dan Sickles, he was nothing if not aggressive. And instead, you've got them replaced with the likes of, of the drunken William H. French and uh, the incompetent William Hayes and the likes of, of uh, John Newton, who was a capable soldier, but probably beyond his abilities as a corps commander. So these are all important factors. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia lived to fight for nearly two more years. On the Confederate side of the coin, you know, Lee accepted the blame for the defeat and tried to resign. Jefferson Davis wouldn't allow it. The Confederates remained full of fight. Even being defeated at Gettysburg, they didn't even view it as a defeat. And they didn't view it that they'd been beaten. They remained just as full of fight with their morale just as high as ever, and, and that's one of the reasons why the events that play out along the Potomac River in the days after the Battle of Gettysburg play out the way they do. Those Confederates were ready to ready to take on all comers. So, you know, strategically, is Gettysburg a big deal in the outcome of the war? Not necessarily, other than the fact that it inflicted casualties on the Army of Northern Virginia that it couldn't afford to take and couldn't replace. Determining how Gettysburg became so significant beyond the war requires separate and thorough examination. You know, there's A, the way that Gettysburg grew from being a big fight to being known as the greatest battle of the Civil War, the greatest American battle. And there's also instances within that that certainly evolved over the years. Let me give you some examples. First of all, 
Um, you have right after the Battle of Gettysburg, the popular places are not the places that are popular now. It, it was not Pickett's Charge and Little Round Top. After the battle, where was it? The places closest to town with the remnants of the battle on Culp's Hill, the shattered trees, the bullet-torn trees, and, and everything like that. So that's where people went and wrote about, you know, more than anything else. And it would only be later that places like Little Round Top and the High Watermark, as they coincided with both preservation and access, really important things. Um, that those places would become more important. So the the evolution and memory of Gettysburg is even changing since I've been a battlefield guide. Since the mid-90s, people have started to change sort of the, you know, memory scape of, you know, individual parts of the Battle of Gettysburg. But what I would say is that pretty early on, starting in 1863, when, you know, it's the first battlefield park, each cemetery hill had some land preserve for purposes of a battlefield park. You had that, you had the battle itself, you had it near population centers. Then you had, right in 1863, the photographers covering it and a bunch of newspaper artists, um, uh, sorry, artists and correspondents covering it. And then it was preserved. And then Lincoln comes and delivers the Gettysburg Address. And that sort of five-pronged um, approach really worked to set Gettysburg on the path to be the greatest of all Civil War battles, even before the war was over. It was already pretty much you know, recognized as that. And then what happened afterward, you know, only skyrocketed it to this sort of, you know, grand, what my boss calls it is the Kentucky Derby of all American battlefields, because, you know, you've got everybody, if you're going to put a monument somewhere and you only have money for one, where are you going to put it? I'm going to put it at Gettysburg. And if I put it at Gettysburg, I'm going to try to put it at one of the famous places at Gettysburg. So, you know, you have like the high water market Gettysburg, you have the, you know, round tops at Gettysburg. And, you know, and it's, and while there are a lot of other peach orchards, you know, in a lot of places, it's said that every battlefield has, you know, a peach orchard, a railroad cut, a sunken road and things like that. I mean, the wheat field at Gettysburg, everyone knows what you mean. If you say the wheat field, you're not talking about Cedar Mountain or one of these other places. You're talking about Gettysburg because of the way the part the memory has played. Now, having said all that about what it might seem like I'm calling some sort of a false move, I mean, Gettysburg is by far the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. Nothing's even close. Even if you take lower figures that some people like to use, nothing else is like it. Um, it is also, you know, probably got some of the most combatants of the Civil War actually fighting. Um, Fredericksburg has far more soldiers there, but there's a lot of them not fighting. I mean, at Gettysburg, you can count maybe one Confederate brigade or one and a half, and then, you know, the elements of one Union Corps as having not fought. But, it, you know, at Fredericksburg, you have whole corps sitting out and things like that. So that's kind of my general answer about it. Gettysburg is known that way, but its memory sort of deserves it, even as Hollywood and others constantly skew it. I would like to thank Tom Huntington, Eric Wittenberg, James Hessler, and Gary Edelman for participating in this podcast. Please check out their many works. You can subscribe to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, and be sure to check out our website, capitaldistrictcivilwar.org.